Hello, and welcome to From the Void Up, World Building with Science and Sociology. This is a world building guide for anybody who cares too much about the minutiae. I'm your host, Tyler Hadar, and if we're all ready to go, let's get building. Last week, we talked about rocks and stuff, and those are all very nice and I love them very much. But if you want to see where life comes from, you need to head to the water. Now, I am a known water lover and an ocean lover. There is a reason I know so many different oceans and water deities, and there are many because water is literally the birthing place of life. In mythology, water gets tied to the water of the womb, and therefore fertility, particularly in the Yoruba traditions, but this interpretation actually has a ton more scientific backing than you might initially think. In 1953, a scientist named Stanley Miller set up a simulation of a prehistoric ocean era. He had a flask of water with a tube of different gases that, at the time, scientists believed were in the prehistoric atmosphere. When the waters inevitably had some evaporation and the water vapors then mixed with the atmosphere, he would send electrical currents, kind of like lightning, through the air and let whatever came down in what essentially might as well have been rain just come down. And what came down were the basic components of life. There were five proteins to begin with, But as the years have gone by, new scientists have been replicating this study with updated atmospheric composition estimates, and they've synthesized 22 amino acids, 5 amines, and many more hydroxylated molecules, which are essentially more proteins that interact pretty easily with liquids, as well as in living beings. Any organism that uses oxygen to process their energy stores uses water in that process and to digest if they need to digest stuff. Now, that's not to say that all organisms need oxygen, so perhaps our water isn't necessary for all life everywhere in the universe, but it sure does help the type of life that we personally recognize like plants and animals. This means fantasy settings, unless you seriously dig into developing whole new life forms, will have to have some degree of water. And having water means there will be ponds, lakes, groundwater tables, and probably larger salty bodies of water like seas and oceans. Also, you can't have sea pirates without a sea or an ocean, and then like, what's even the point if you can't have the pirate aesthetic? personally speaking. Not to mention, massive regions full of difficult-to-traverse environments always add some nice plot lines, and oceans have captured human imagination for as long as we've seen them. It's only fitting to replicate the awe and wonder we have in our stories. Also, oceans do so much more than just hold water. There are two major roles that the oceans play on the Earth that we're going to talk about today. Firstly, they redistribute heat around the planet, which is especially important for areas towards the poles. Secondly, they are pivotal in creating major weather patterns, especially in redistributing rains. So let's briefly go over uneven heating of the Earth's surface. Due to the fact that our planet is round, the sun's energy arriving in light 
get spread around a rounded surface, so different areas are going to receive different amounts of energy. The curves make different angles with the light of the sun. Picture holding up a flashlight to a piece of paper. If you hold the paper perpendicular to the light, there's a focused circle of bright, intense, but kind of small light. That is how the light hits the Earth in the tropics, more or less. All this intense light energy goes into a small space, meaning it's producing more heat per square foot. Now angle the paper away, like if it were near the poles. The shape of the light hitting the paper is now more of an oval, and it's a much larger space. This doesn't mean that there's more light, however. The flashlight isn't creating anything more than it did last time. No, it's actually just getting spread thin over a larger area, meaning there's less energy per square foot, meaning it's not going to get quite as hot as it does in the tropics. But believe it or not, this uneven heating of the Earth's surface doesn't even cause the largest form of circulation that our oceans have. Some of the smaller ones, definitely, but not the largest, because water takes so much energy to shift its temperature, and the sun's energy can only reach so deep into the oceans before it's just all the same cold temperature down below. What actually drives the ocean-wide major current is changes in density, which, yes, okay, does have a bit to do with temperature, but it is actually primarily about salinity and then the rotation of the planet. The biggest cycle that distributes temperature, but not necessarily is dependent on temperature, is called the thermohaline circulation, or more colloquially, the giant conveyor. And it really requires a whole massive ocean system like ours to work. The thermohaline conveyor thing is dependent on density. This is where we start looking at convection currents. Again, I told you they'd be everywhere. Last episode, I explained them mostly with the idea of heat and energy rather than getting into density and high and low pressure areas. Less dense waters rise, yes, but that leaves behind a gap where there used to be water, which makes that area lower pressure because there is less pressing down on it. And no one likes being in a high-pressure, high-stress environment, including water. So the denser waters down at the bottom of the ocean move into low-pressure zones to escape the high pressure on them. But also, when these dense waters sink down here, they're essentially leaving low-pressure zones that the less dense surface waters can move in to fill. And these two processes drive the thermohaline circulation almost completely. Up at the poles, the water is very cold because A, it's far away from the sun, and B, there's so much ice up there that's keeping it cold. This chills the incoming water down until it freezes, but it's salt water, and when salt water freezes, the salt crystals themselves are expelled, making whatever water is left over a lot denser because now it has so much more salt in it. All this really dense salty water sinks, and that leaves behind an area for more warm water to move up into, bringing waters slowly, slowly up from the equator in a very long, roundabout way. 
and the waters down at the equator, while the surface waters are warmer, the deeps are actually still cold. But the surface water, as it warms, it starts to evaporate and rain more. And this influx of rainwater actually makes the water less salty because you're now adding more fresh water to the salt water. And this makes the entire area a lot less dense, all the way down deeper than what potentially temperatures could affect. This makes the lower waters less dense and they can start to rise a little bit more towards the surface, which is already being pulled towards the poles by the sinking waters at those freezing points. Now at the surface, they start getting pulled towards the poles themselves until they finally reach them and freeze themselves. This process takes about a thousand years to complete, and it moves warm waters towards the otherwise completely freezing cold poles. There are specific points actually where it seems the water rises up in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, so it's not always consistent on why the water rises in particular places, but the currents also have specific places where it then freezes and sinks again in the North Atlantic and a couple spots in Antarctica. Because water's temperature is much more difficult to change, surface waters that do actually warm up take a lot longer to cool. As they move poleward, they warm the airs above them, which in turn makes otherwise frigid regions temperate. For example, the Gulf Stream Current, which moves along the United States' eastern seaboard, carries warmer waters north, distributing warm air currents to New England and southern bits of Canada, as well stretching all the way to Europe. The Gulf Stream is actually one of the primary sources of warmth for Scotland. This also helps regulate temperatures in the winter where the region otherwise gets minimal heat from the sun and carries in the majority of that classic English rain. The way the thermohaline conveyor travels is controlled mostly by the shape of the ocean floor, but also marginally by larger surface currents. Surface currents form from the frictions between water and moving air currents. These movements that are created from the friction then apply friction down to the next layer of ocean water, which then begins to move in approximately the same direction, just much more slowly. These lower layers then in turn apply friction to the lowest bottom waters, the cold waters that are moving towards the equator or just generally away from the poles. And while they don't fully pull anything in one direction or another, it does kind of correct course and nudges the flows through small turns as they move in accordance with the geology of the ocean floor. The surface currents, however, are dramatically important for transporting heat themselves. The Gulf Stream is technically a stop along the thermohaline cycle, but it's also part of what's called an ocean gyre. Ocean gyres are large circular currents that interact with the air currents very specifically because our world is a turning ball. Which means it is time for the Coriolis effect. Which is less than ideal because this concept is really hard to visualize. So in addition to listening to this, if inevitably this makes no sense, uh, you can go to my YouTube channel, which is also from The Void Up, where these podcasts are also getting uploaded, and I have playlists that's just 
like 500 different explanations of the Coriolis effect, eventually somebody's going to explain it in a way that makes sense to you. Eventually. It's just, just try them all and eventually one will work, I think. So I'm going to try and explain it and make, have it make as much sense as I can. But if it doesn't make sense, go check out YouTube videos. Those would definitely help as backup. Let's imagine a plate, like a dinner plate. And you've got a drop of ketchup in the center of the plate, and then a drop of ketchup at the lip. And then you've got a third one directly in between the two. So you've got three spots of ketchup, one, two, three, from the middle to the outside. If you spin that plate around for one full rotation, the drop at the center isn't traveling any distance. It's just turning in a circle around itself. It's not going any distance. The one at the edge has to travel around the entire circumference of the plate in one rotation. But the middle one is also traveling, but it's going half the distance in the same time because it's going around from the middle of the plate. Well, if something goes farther in the same amount of time as something else, then it must be going faster. So everything far out on the equator, which is far away from the axis, the center of rotation, it's moving faster than points closer to the poles, because it's so much farther from that center of rotation. When things are traveling inward from the equator, it's towards the pole, it's traveling east around the world faster still. Like if you and a friend were on two parallel moving sidewalks like they have in airports, but yours is moving slightly faster. If you throw a ball to them when you're right across the way, the ball is still technically moving horizontally with the momentum of your sidewalk, as well as now the direction that you're applying it towards your friend. So it's getting horizontal momentum from your sidewalk, which is faster than your friend's horizontal movement. The ball will then reach the other path, essentially ahead of when your friend is going to get there, because it's moving horizontally faster. On the planet, the equator is moving to the east faster than something closer to the poles. So something moving to the poles, or poleward, would get, we call it, deflected to the east. And then if something is moving from the poles to the equator, it deflects west as if it were falling behind, because it is. So if something moving away goes east, and something moving towards goes west, it kind of creates a large circle. So it's kind of like going up into the right, and then down into the left, and it all kind of forms a circle. If you direct your hand in the air in front of you, up to the right, down to the left, you make a kind of circle. So let's look at the North Atlantic Ocean specifically. Let's say that there is some cold air moving south from Europe. As it's traveling south, it's deflected west, meaning it's going to reach the equator more like at the center of the ocean as opposed to right along the same longitude as where it started. Or warm air from the middle of the ocean, or perhaps off the coast of West Africa, is traveling kind of north, but it deflects heavily to the west as it goes and it ends up going from West Africa to New England, traveling up along the eastern seaboard along, you might guess, the Gulf Stream. 
This type of airflow directly transports those massive spiral storms that, on the North Atlantic, we call hurricanes. Other oceans have different names for their storm systems, but they all get carried on these rotations in the ocean. These rotations make a lot more sense if you just think of it as a giant circle in the ocean. In the northern hemisphere, it turns clockwise. In the southern hemisphere, it turns anti-clockwise. And these giant circles are called gyres. So the air currents are moving this way too. And it has then friction with the surface of the ocean, which is causing those surface currents that I had said I was going to talk about. These surface currents are what drive the ocean gyres. It's less the water itself getting pulled in the Coriolis effect, and it's less the, the water itself heating and moving, as it is the heating and cooling of the air currents mixed with the heating and cooling of the water itself, and then the Coriolis effect, and then it all just forms these giant circles, and that's the main thing. They're caused by the Coriolis effect and the friction between the air and the water, but also the changes in the air and the water themselves. Long story short, circles. Circles that help move heat along them, like warm coastal waters coming up north, bringing heat with them, and then cold northern surface waters moving south, helping move different water temperatures around and kind of cooling off those extremely hot areas. I'm going to talk a little bit more about these and storms in the atmosphere episode because the atmosphere and the ocean are just so inexplicably linked, you can't really separate the two, especially if you're talking about weather. Speaking of weather, if you have an ocean in your world with continents on either side of it, you can start out by checking to see which hemisphere it's in. If it's in what would be your northern hemisphere, for example, Coasts along the eastern side of the ocean will have cold currents traveling south, while the west side will have warm air currents traveling north. Think about it like North Carolina versus California. California, if you pictured the entire Pacific Ocean, is actually on the eastern side of its ocean, which gets warm waters maximum 68 degrees Fahrenheit or about 20 degrees Celsius. North Carolina, on the western side of the Atlantic, has those temperatures as the coldest temperatures in swimming season. The same website, it's currentresults.com, doesn't have California water temperatures in the winter months, so I can't tell you how cold it gets there, but the warmest it will ever get, that I checked, is a full 14 degrees Fahrenheit colder than North Carolina in the same month. And the important thing is, these two states are on similar latitude points, so they should be getting similar atmospheric temperatures as well as similar amounts of sunlight. So yeah, you can definitely tell which regions get which currents, which impacts quite a bit for the local climates if you think about North Carolina's environment compared to Southern California. And this is mostly because water has something called specific heat. Technically, everything has specific heat, but water's cool. Specific heat is a measure of how much energy it takes to change the temperature of one gram of material one degree Celsius. How much energy must go in or come out for that change to occur. 
Water is considered the base unit of measure for this because A, it's really common, and B, it has a really high specific heat, in fact, the highest of any common substance, which means it is excellent for temperature regulation. It can absorb more energy out of warm spots without changing too much itself, and when it gets warmer than the air around it, it can easily and evenly redistribute that heat up into the atmosphere around it for a while. Like you've left some tea that you were trying to cool out on the kitchen table for about an hour and it's still warm? That would be specific heat for you. Now this, turns out, is very important for temperature regulation because the specific heat of pretty much anything that makes up land is a lot lower. It takes a lot less energy to heat it up. Asphalt absorbs all of the energy from the sun like water does, but it turns into heat so much faster and becomes so much hotter. Same for pretty much any type of rock. And that heat then radiates back up into the air, meaning inland areas are going to see greater temperature fluctuations as everything heats up and cools down so much faster than places with water that can absorb and retain and slowly redistribute that heat. This is how Southern California just doesn't have seasons, but is a very consistent 70 degrees all along the major coastal cities. In comparison, Midwestern states see very cold winters and sweltering summers. There is no water to take in the heat and then slowly release it when everything around it becomes colder. If you take a look at a coastal region's local weather station every once in a while, the temperature predictions directly along the coast will be actually noticeably milder than towns even only a few miles away. It's not just oceans that impact this, although larger bodies of water tend to see greater areas of effect than lakes. But the Great Lakes do provide a certain amount of temperature regulation for its region, and it also is why there is so much snow in Minnesota. But if you start to look at the temperature of the water that's neighboring a region, you can start to predict how much rainfall it's going to be getting. Because if there is warm water, then the water can actually then evaporate more easily because it takes less energy to tip those molecules past the tipping point so they can evaporate into the atmosphere. And if there's water vapor in the atmosphere, it will eventually have to come back down in rain. So areas with warmer water currents coming in get more rain than similar regions with cold water currents. Like, again, North Carolina and South California. Warm water means more evaporation, and all of that water vapor is now traveling in the air currents moving in these gyres too, which means the rain is going to fall somewhere along that air currents path, which North Carolina is directly in the path of the Gulf Stream Mexico. And then in California, it doesn't have warm water, so it's really not going to get that much rain coming down because there's less evaporating, which is why it's so dry over there. And warm water is particularly good at spiral storms, like hurricanes. The eastern seaboard sees so many hurricanes, like right now in the 2020 hurricane season. I wrote this the week of tropical storm Isaias making landfall in the Carolinas, and I'm recording this as Laura is doing whatever Hurricane Laura is doing in Kentucky. I don't have an explanation for that, 
But okay, she's in Kentucky right now. But anyway, I'm going to assume that even from Hurricane Laura, the hurricanes are just going to keep on coming until September, maybe later, because heat is essentially energy. The warmer something is, the more energy it can have. So we have so much more warm water nowadays with global climate change, even slight increases in temperature can create dramatically stronger and more frequent storms, which is why this year's bad, and as much as 2020 sucks, we can all assume that 2021, environmentally, is just going to keep getting worse. So, (laughs) beyond just large storms and doomsday, warm water does just generally mean more rain. So, North Carolina is a lot greener than Southern California, and therefore it kind of enforces different biomes, allowing deserts or forests or something of the sort. Being along large and more or less still bodies of water leads to more water evaporating up into local weather patterns, even along the Mediterranean Sea. Which, by the way, let's just quickly go over the difference between a sea and an ocean because that might be important for you guys trying to determine what is what. There are certain criteria which differentiate between the two. There's depth, size, and marine life. The Earth's oceans vary in depth, going from over 10,000 meters deep to only about 5,000 or so. The world ocean, all of the oceans combined, actually only averages to about 3,688 meters. Seas can be pretty deep as well. The Caribbean is about the deepest at 6,946 meters, but generally they're not that deep. And they also don't really connect like oceans do. The depth of connections for the oceans really helps the deep sea waters move, cold thermohaline conveyor sorts of waters. The deep waters of seas don't really move unless they're connected to each other, but even those connections are thin and difficult to move through, so you don't tend to see sea deep water really flowing anywhere which makes the seas extremely dependent on more local surface inflows. The Mediterranean Sea would actually lower in depth from year to year if the Strait of Gibraltar were to close, because that's a major influx of water for the sea itself. Size-wise, the surface area of an ocean can depend, but the Atlantic covers about 5 million square kilometers, and the Pacific covers upwards of 6 million. In comparison, the Mediterranean is a measly 1,144,000 or so square kilometers. It's large enough to develop mini ocean gyres, but not to the extent of the Atlantic. It can normalize the smaller coastlines, just like the oceans, but the oceans have far more coast to impact, which is why Italy and southern France are nice, but it's not like If you go way far north in France, you're going to continue to see the warm coastal airs of the Mediterranean the way they get kind of deep into the Carolinas. Finally, there is marine life. Seas are far more abundant than oceans. Oceans have massive amounts of life, but frequently in the microscopic order. So there can be vast deserts of absolutely nothing in certain levels of the sea. No fish in the region for miles that you could catch. 
seas being smaller and closer in proximity to land almost always have an abundant marine life seen. Also, because they're less deep, sunlight can actually hit proportionally a deeper amount of sea than ocean. Much more ocean is below light access, so fewer plants can photosynthesize, meaning it has a smaller food chain than seas. More plants mean more energy being converted into food, meaning more total numbers of organisms can exist. Neither coast really would have better fishing, really, but in the seas, the whole area is far more accessible to any people looking to find food than trying to find food in the middle of the Atlantic. Which brings me to the fantasy side of things. When establishing worlds, not everyone likes having large clumps of land surrounded by large clumps of water. If you do, then great. Take a look at maps of Earth's currents and figure out how you could recreate some of those in your own world. And if you want smaller continents and smaller seas more evenly distributed, that's going to affect your climates. Bodies of water that don't all connect won't have stuff like the thermohaline conveyor to run macro energy movement. So then, how will your smaller bodies of water still move energy? Well, we can have many ocean gyres to move warmth around its direct region, so oceans aren't something that you need. You just need to recognize that regions to the north and the south are going to be dramatically colder, and along the equator everything will be a lot hotter. Rains will fall down closer to your bodies of water, although next week's climate cell episode will help establish weather patterns so much more. Not full meteorology lesson yet, but closer. Storms in small sea environments are less severe unless you have larger sections of sea. You don't really hear of Italy getting hit by hurricanes, but the Caribbean does have strong ones as well, although those tend to develop somewhere along the Atlantic Ocean. And sure, some do start inside of the sea, but the vast majority are really coming off the coast of Africa and the Atlantic side of the Caribbean islands or somewhere in between. So storms will be less powerful, but not non-existent. Food would be readily available with the increased coastlines, but it's a trade-off for less of the planet's surface as being as habitable as Earth. Traveling around the world, however, would probably be kind of easier in a small continent, small sea sort of world. Ships have less water to cross, though depending on how connected the seas are, overland transportation might actually become very important. To tie this back to plate tectonics, small bodies of water also suggest that the majority of the world has very small oceanic plates. The Mediterranean Sea is actually an old oceanic plate split between the African and Eurasian plates. Its tectonics are rather interesting, actually. They're probably connected to Mount Vesuvius. But if it's all just seas, then your plates will almost always have a mix of oceanic and continental on them, or be very small like the Nazca or Philippine plates. Or, in worlds with mostly ocean, even more than ours, temperatures will likely be extremely well controlled, like in New Zealand really never getting any major seasons. But depending on where your few pieces of lands are, 
The storms could actually be a lot more catastrophic if they're deadly in the line of where hurricanes would be running through. Especially if it's difficult for you to escape them. Like, imagine islands left with no major land system to fall back to, and no way to escape the years of constant storm bombardment in societies with nobody to provide support or supplies in case of particularly bad storms. And this, by the way, shouldn't be too hard to do, since there are already actually a few flooding in our world from global warming. We already have environmental refugees. The way you have your oceans or seas is going to impact the regions around them, as well as around the whole world, in terms of coastal weather and global warmth distribution. Consider them closely. So you can either create a world to specifically contain certain characteristics or just create your oceans and seas and see where they take you. But of course, a lot of what I just mentioned is really the tip of the iceberg. But of course, a lot of what I just mentioned is the tip of the iceberg. Let's do a zoom in and talk about coastal environments, particularly sounds. These are rather rare environments, but New England happens to have a particularly famous one. Today, we're going to be discussing Long Island Sound and sounds in general with the president of Sound Waters, an education and research organization from Stamford, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm very happy to have you on the show. If you could just do, give a quick introduction as to who you are and uh, what your background is. Glad to be here with you, Tyler. My name is Lee Shemitz, um, and I'm the president of Soundwaters, which is a group based here in Connecticut and Stanford uh, that focuses on Long Island Sound education and outreach. And uh, we believe that uh, a healthy environment is a human right. And we work towards that through education programs, research, outreach. And I've been here for many years. And my background before that, I have a um, master's in forest ecology from Yale and a PhD in environmental health. And uh, a lot of different experiences woven in. So happy to be here and talk about Long Island Sound and uh, kind of how it works and how and anything that might be of uh, a value to you and your listeners. All right. Thank you so much again. So about the sound specifically, we're talking Long Island Sound, so just south of Connecticut and along Long Island, hence the name. So could you tell me a little bit about like major inflows and outflows for the sound? Where is the water that's there really coming from? So I, I can explain that. Let me first also kind of explain a little bit what a sound is, because if sure. you're not from this area, um, it's, a, it's an odd word. There's a few others, Puget Sound, um, a, few, a few others around the world, but a sound, you know, there's bays, there's embayments, uh, there's, uh, a sound is kind of an area which is between places. It's got a very vague definition. Um, and in this case, it's between the Connecticut coast and Long Island, which is an island which is just a few miles across literally is uh, actually it's a it's a terminal moraine so it's, a, it's actually part of another state so the, you get this area that's kind of like a bay um, it's definitely an estuary and an estuary is a place where waters mix so it's not you know so if some people are from this area they'll know about Long Island Sound but then if they puzzle they'll actually wonder yeah there aren't that many others but it's it's not dissimilar to a bay uh, a fjord is a lot deeper and narrower so there are all sorts of there are similarities and because it's between places um, the water in Long Island Sound um, flows from a couple different ways. And to understand kind of how water flows, whether it's pollutants, plastics, or just general water in the mixing, that's kind of the, the start of it. So um, if visually, if you kind of imagine looking down on Long Island Sound, so to the north, um, kind of northwest, but 
mostly north is Connecticut, the coast of Connecticut, reasonably straight. And then south is Long Island, again, reasonably straight. And so you've got this area that's almost kind of like a bathtub. It's this, it's this oval it's kind of shape. And it's open at both ends. So at the east end, uh, it's open to the Atlantic Ocean out by, uh, it's called the Race, out by um, uh, Rhode Island. And so you get flows of ocean salty water. And then down at the western end, it comes down into New York City, into the East River at the Throgs Neck Bridge. Uh, it gets much more narrower there. The sound definitely narrows, even though it's kind of an oval, it's much wider towards the east, much narrower towards the west. And that actually becomes important in how things flow. Um, and then water flows in uh, mostly from Connecticut, a little bit from Long Island. So you get fresh water coming in. And it is an estuary, which means it's a mix of salt uh, and fresh water. So it's called brackish water. And the biggest differentiator there is amount of salinity parts uh, usually counted in PPTs, parts per thousand. Um, and salinity is a key factor in what grows where um, and how things thrive. It's a natural factor. It is influenced by humans, but mostly it's a natural factor. And it tends to mix, but not so much because of density issues. So you tend to have, you know, uh, a lot of variation in salinity, both along the water column. And by that, I mean up and down. So as you can imagine, since water, salt water is heavier, there's more, um, the, the water is more saline, uh, heavier, more salinity lower than it is upper. And then there's more saline, uh, more higher salinity towards the east because that's where the ocean water comes in than it would be not right near the embayments where the fresh water comes in. So it's, it's fairly logical how it works, but the, the impact of that in terms of what can live is quite, is quite strong because some animals thrive in salt water, some thrive in salt, in uh, fresh water, um, and a few, a uh, few thrive in, in the mix, but it really does vary. Yeah, that makes sense that since you have ocean waters mixing with fresh waters that you get like a gradient from one side to the other. Yes. Could you give me a couple examples of different organisms that do better in some of these different regions that people could potentially throw into a sound that they're creating in their setting? Oh, that's a really good point. Well, some would be um, flora. So, so there are very few plants that can really handle salt to begin with for reasons, but there are, there are salt marsh grasses, which actually thrive and actually uptake the salt. In fact, when you run your fingers over them, it's actually quite, quite salty. So salt marsh grasses, um, and there's a couple different kinds, uh, will grow. And in fact, as you, as uh, some grow kind of deeper and closer to the water, some grow further out, but salt marsh grasses do thrive. Eelgrass will thrive, but most plants, cannot handle the salt. Um, some invasive plants uh, do pretty well, and that can be Phragmites. Those are the ones, uh, for listeners who kind of know the area, they kind of have beautiful fronds on top of them, and they look quite beautiful, they, but they're also quite invasive. Um, uh, so there's Phragmites can also, can also handle that. Animal-wise, there's a lot of animals that begin their life in an estuary. That's where an estuary has a lot of power in an ecosystem. So even though the uh, animals will breathe and nest and start their lives there and then move out. So an estuary is really key to the life cycle of many, many species. Other animals that will spend their life in the sound, um, there's a lot of different fish um, that can handle this. The key issue for them is actually oxygen, which we kind of put off to the side, but that's a key issue in an estuary and in Long Island Sound. But from a salinity point of view, um, many animals can um, handle that, and it will vary depending on, their, on where they are in their life cycle. And there's one lovely, really charismatically cute animal, which is the diamondback terrapin, which is the only terrapin uh, that can uh, survive in brackish water. And that's an animal that was um, what's known as extirpated, which is locally extinct by the 30s. 
it was because it was actually used for turtle soup. Turtles are incredibly easy to harvest because they kind of hang out. Um, you, know, you know, they don't run so fast and all the rest. So um, turtles were used in turtle soup until they were pretty much gone from Long Island Sound. And that's where regulation can come in because it became illegal to harvest the terrapin. And slowly the population has come back um, because they weren't completely extinct. And that's why they were extirpated. They hadn't been seen. And they have now come back. They're still hard to see because of their life cycle. They really only come up and gather in the spring when they're mating. And then you might see them when they're laying eggs later in the spring and then maybe in the fall when they hatch. So you don't see them often. Uh, they're very well camouflaged, but people are starting to see them more often places like Norwalk. There's a few areas where they're becoming known as places people can see terrapins. Um, other parts of the country down in the Chesapeake, up in Kit Cod, ch uh, terrapins are seen also in an estuary, but they're now coming back to Long Island, which, you know, from the point of view of some of your listeners and, um, and rules, sometimes these kind of top-down rules, uh, these regulations have a, are, are critical. Um, sometimes they're not, but uh, there are some animals who thrive. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah. it sounds a lot like human activity really engages with sounds. Are there any surprising ways that humans are really impacting this environment? beyond just like overhunting, but maybe like even just construction on coastlines and stuff like that? Does that impact any? It, it does. And it's not so much because it's a sound. It's because it's a highly populated sound. So, and you're absolutely right, Tyler. So um, roughly speaking, within a 50 mile radius of Long Island Sound, there's close to 25 million people. It's actually wow. an urbanized watershed in that sense. There's just a, a ton of people living right around us. And so every bit of, so, so if you start, as you were saying, right by the coast, the loss of habitat from people building. This is this is a beautiful coastline. Um, and what humans like to do, or at least Americans in a beautiful coastline, is build houses and seawalls and docks and all different ways that we find ways as humans to enjoy. We have taken away incredible amounts of habitat. And there's all kinds of, well, downstream effects of that. Um, you see it a lot. You hear about it a lot with climate change and with uh, major storms. Heard about it. You hear about it a lot in the Gulf. Um, we just had that uh, storm, Laura, but, you know, of course, uh, many years ago, Katrina, the loss of all of the marshes in Louisiana has made the impacts of hurricanes much stronger because marshes and wetlands are natural absorbers of force. So as great winds and tides and waves come onto a shore, um, if you have wetlands and natural, they actually, they're a natural buffer. Without that, the impact of storms is much greater. A seawall is a really lousy way to mitigate against high storms and winds and, and uh, waves. So part of it is for storms, but part of it is for the habitat. Um, as humans, we tend not to value mucky marshes. We're much more comfortable with seawalls and docks. And so, and those marshes are key areas for as I said, for nesting um, and the raising of young. So um, one way that we humans impact it is literally on the shore, that we, we tend to harden it. And while that's to some degree understandable, there's very, very little of Long Island Sound that has anything close to a natural shoreline left. And there's a lot of impacts of that. The, the other really big impact from people is just the, uh, the flush of our daily lives, that literally and figuratively, 50, you know, 25 million people living their lives, um, whether it's, you know, sewage, whether it's chemicals on lawns, whether it's oils and different aspects of cars and things, all of this, the over uh, fertilizing of lawns, of farms, all of that. There's a phrase, Tyler, that we all live downstream. Long Island Sound is downstream of a lot of activity. And so some of that has been mitigated over the years. It was much worse 30 years ago. 
Um, so there's some really nice stories to, to unpack there, but there's definitely some cautionary tales as well. Yeah, because I think a lot of what over-fertilization does is create a lot of algae blooms, which essentially, for the first part, it creates tons of oxygen as there's so much plant activity, but then they die and they decompose, and that then sucks up all of the oxygen, if I'm remembering my AP environmental lessons well enough. So is that something that's still a major problem in, on the sound, or is it starting to ease up? So it's an interesting thing, and what you're describing is a really big issue. Um, it's called hypoxia, and you, again, you nailed it from AP Environmental. So yes, props to the teachers um, and to you, um, absolutely. So what nitrogen, you know, encourages plant growth. We all know that that's why people put it on their lawns. And you know, the the problem we have is um, putting on at the wrong time, putting on way too much. Part of it's our aesthetics, you know, that people drive by a bright green lawn and think, oh, that's beautiful. Um, I think when we all start looking by, you know, driving by those bright iridescent green lawns and think, oh my God, look at those chemicals, we'll be in a much, much better place because there is this idea that these stretches of lawns are somehow unnatural and, 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 you know, something that people want. So I think there's a lot of aesthetics behind it. There's a lot of aesthetics in Fairfield County around it. Yeah. Um, but what it leads to is people putting in way too much nitrogen. I mean, I would argue, you know, any is, is, is excessive, but nonetheless, way too much at the wrong time of year because um, nitrogen is uptaken by lawns better in the fall in small amounts. So there are ways that people can responsibly and much more carefully still have a nice lawn and not have such a negative contribution. But usually what happens come spring, people just throw this stuff out, you know, and if it's a certain amount, like, oh, a little more is better. And what happens is the, the plants can't uptake it. It flushes down. It makes its way as every bit of water does down to Long Island Sound with all that excess nitrogen. And just like you said, Tyler, um, it creates algae growth. And then what happens is once the algae dies, then when it decomposes, it just sucks the oxygen out of the water. It's called hypoxia. So Long Island Sound, it's better. Um, hypoxic conditions are studied and have been studied um, by the state of Connecticut for and um, the U.S. Uh, Geologic Service for over 30 years. We've got phenomenal data on it because you can check DO, dissolved oxygen. It's, it's a very easy uh, test to do, and it's done at different heights in the water column throughout the sound, and we have data going back 30 years. And so what's becoming clear is that with reductions in nitrogen, and there have been, and the total daily maximum load, we're having fewer hypoxic days overall in the sound, but we're still having many, especially in the Western sound. And that goes back into the mixing. Because if you're in the Eastern sound where it's kind of open and there's more fresh ocean water coming in, you get less, you get, you get, you get more mixing bound by the, by, uh, by where we live down here in Stanford, by the Western sound, we're kind of like, if you go back to that bathtub analogy, we're kind of by the plug and there's just less mixing and it's very, uh, very intense. And there's really a line in the sound almost exactly at New Haven. And east of New Haven, there's far fewer hypoxic conditions west of New Haven. Um, and there's even ways to give it a grade, you know, A through F. And we get really wells into the Ds, especially by August, because then there's heat actually is a factor here as well. As the water heats up, again, less oxygen. Some of the good stories here are that for over 30 years, there's been a tremendous amount of focus and push on reducing nitrogen inflows from, say, sewage treatment plants. 30 odd years ago, there weren't standards. Then there were federal standards, state enforcement, and um, you know Connecticut has some of the the best water treatment plants along the coast, you know, in the country, and that has dramatically reduced the nitrogen. And that's where you kind of come into this issue of which you'll remember from AP Environmental, a, a point and non-point solution uh, source pollution. So, you know, point source solution. There's two kinds of pollution uh, in, in in the watershed: point source and non-point source. And it's really easy because point source is the things you can point to. 
a non-point source or more kind of throughout the and so the point source ones the the water treatment plants we can point to those we can we can we can regulate that we can measure it and that has come down dramatically and that's been terrific but the non-point the the extra nitrogen from lawns the extra nitrogen from farms upstream the extra um, nitrogen from leaky septic systems and cesspools which it turns out is a huge problem that has not improved dramatically. And that's where you get a really important distinction between the middle of the sound, where the, most of this measuring has gone on, and what's called, well, the coastal, the near, the near bay, embayments, yeah, bay, bay, right at the edge. So there's a lot more testing going on now. There's been 30 years of testing more towards the middle of the sound, a lot more understanding in the last 10 years that we really have to understand these sort of micro areas. So there are some areas where you can test and the numbers are crazy off the charts. And it's because there's leaky septics or leaky in, um, in, when you go to Long Island, they literally have cesspools and that's leaching through the water. And that's much harder. That's the needle in the haystack. That's tracing it back. People don't know that they have leaks. If once they do, they fix them. Well, they have to. I mean, who wouldn't want to? If you live by the coast, you care mostly, but it's, it's not known. There's also strange, you know, just like anything else, there's geologic factors. So I mentioned before that Long Island, Long Island was formed, um, Long Island Sound was formed in the last glaciation, you know, um, the Wisconsin glaciers about uh, 10,000 years ago. And what happened as the glaciers ended really at Long Island, they stopped at Long Island and that's, and then they receded back. And that's why it's this long strip of what's called a terminal or end moraine. But because it's a glacier, it was a glacier, what got left was everything that was kind of caught up in the glacier, the rocks, the sand, the boulders, and when it melts, it just drops. And it's a very, very sandy, rocky, porous um, area Long Island is. So that means whatever goes in, in the ground in Long Island seeps right into the sound because of the nature of the soil, because it's just so porous. Uh, because the glacier just pushes and pushes and pushes, it stops, it dumps, and what dumps is essentially, it's basically a long gravel um, bed is what's out there. So you've got you've got Connecticut draining so many miles and so many people. You've got Long Island seeping right in. And then finally, um, you have a very, very big watershed. It's not just the 50 miles. It's actually, it goes all the way up the Connecticut River. The actual watershed, the land that drains in Long Island Sound is vast. It's six states and even goes up to Canada. So it's two countries. And so all of that, and one way that you can kind of visualize it was years ago when there was um, uh, Hurricane Irene. And Hurricane Irene was very devastating in New England and unusual because it went inland. Most hurricanes don't do that. Most hurricanes stay by the coast. Every once in a while, certain factors happen. It happened in 1930. It happened in Irene. And it basically went right up New England and hit Vermont hit really, really hit Vermont. And, uh, you know, if you go up to Vermont, you can still see where they fix things. There were so many bridges out and ravines. It was just devastating. Well, what happened three days later, if you look at Landsat imageries of um, Long Island Sound, right where the Connecticut River flows in, which is in Old Saybrook and Old, and, uh, Old Lyme, it's, you see these images and it almost looks like what you can imagine the Mississippi River Delta to look like. Wow. It's these huge brown swirling masses right at the Delta, right where the Connecticut River, and what you're looking at is the topsoil of Vermont flowing in Long Island Sound, which is a great visualization of what happens on a much smaller scale all the time, that whatever's happening in Vermont and in, in Connecticut and in Massachusetts up in Canada, it all comes in. So all of that flows down um, and has an effect on the sound.
Yeah, that makes sense. And it's really interesting, especially because you're saying a lot of it's coming from wastewaters and farms, which are two things that less developed societies like medieval, which is often the fantasy aesthetic, would have a lot of. So societies based more off of farming agricultures along coasts, you would see a lot of this in the local water areas. How do you think of the sound would look if there was less continual development along it and it was more just if only New York City, if it was like just New York City and then a bunch of more rural space. Do you think that would make a major impact on the sound? Yeah, and I, it's always good for you to kind of redirect me into sort of your, you know, your listenership or whatever, and I guess it's not viewership or readership, but in terms of kind of imagining different communities, yes, it would make a huge difference. Um, and, you know, one issue to think about is simply in the, the, the wildlife, because, you know, when there is um, those natural areas and there is healthier water without great fluctuations in oxygen and different chemicals, things like there used to be massive oyster reefs throughout Long Island Sound, in fact, throughout New York Harbor. Um, now, there's still, there are some, and there's a lot now that are farmed, but, um, and then oyster reefs, then, you know, they, they're, they're a source of food, um, but they also, they mitigate storms, they filter the water, so it becomes a really positive cycle, uh, to say the least. Um, and so there's, so that would, that would make a difference. You'd have, you know, more habitat uh, for key species who are, are nesting and, and, and laying their eggs. Think back to the terrapin. The terrapin, besides being fish, overfished for fish soup, they need beaches um, and they need marshes to lay their eggs. It's very hard to get an undisturbed beach and marsh in Long, in Long Island Sound right now. So absolutely kind of extrapolate out. Um, you, you can have you know, gatherings in cities and, and um, you know, human habitations without having such a devastating impact, um, for sure. Part of it's the scale that there, as, as we, as you pointed out, there really isn't one part of Long Island Sound that isn't impacted uh, by, by people. And so if you were to have areas that weren't, that would make a big difference. So you can, you can to some degree of both and farming, you know, it's the, also it's the intensity of the farming. Uh, also it's what's done at the riparian areas. You know, if there's, if there's, you know, greater buffers, uh, because, you know, trees can uptake nitrogen and, and, you know, trees can be a great sink of these different chemicals. Um, so if you don't farm right up to the edge of the rivers up to there, if you keep the, the, these, these buffer zones, that makes a huge difference as well. That makes sense. Like giving other plants an opportunity to take all of those pollutants out before it gets to the major ecosystems. Exactly. And the nature of the farming. If you're, if you're, you know, if you're taking um, animal waste and push and putting it back into the soil as a natural fertilizer, that's very different in scale than what happens in some farms now, which is, you know, some of these industrial farms are, you know, pouring so much in uh, that the land can't support it. So it's also a matter of scale. Yeah. And a lot of medieval societies would probably have a lot of that smaller scale sort of concept. And that's the medieval aesthetic most fantasy keeps up with. Then right. if there were to be like, I'm just imagining like a large city that's just an isolated large city, but also medieval with some degree of sewage system, but like right on the coastline. But like if the rest of it's rural, how much of an impact throughout the entire sound would one large city make? Like in comparison, how much does New York impact for everything as opposed to New York in addition to the rest of the coastlines and watershed? You know, that's that's a really good question. And, you know, I don't actually have a ready answer because that that experiment doesn't exist um, in some ways. But, you know, I think it would be much, much more localized. What we are seeing is um, and it might, this might partially answer the question is that the, the near coastal embayments are very locally influenced. 
So there, there, you know, so the, 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 the impact could be quite intense right around it, but at the same time, um, it would be much more localized. So that, that's, that's a reasonable sort of extrapolation of what, what, it, what might happen. Um, but no, one city itself um, would have, it would be local, but it wouldn't impact the entire sound. And partly it's also in this imaginary sound, at what end is it? Because if it's down where there's little flow, that's different than if it's an area that, that circulates more. So that's part of it as well. Okay, that makes sense. And just to give a quick wrap up, are there any misconceptions that you think people would have about sounds or about what you do at Long Island Sound or Long Island Sound in particular that you'd like to take a moment to just clear up? Um, well, I guess one would be in just thinking about, you know, the kind of users um, who, who might be thinking about this is the sound is also, which most people don't realize, a transportation route. It has been um, since human habitation, and it still is. If you, it, it, while it looks very bucolic, and is, if you look at it, you'll see constantly um, that uh, barges are moving. There's a very robust uh, system where we have tugboats, et cetera, and that kind of use can coexist with others. Um, and because it's a sound is by definition protected, that's why there's so many barges coming down the sound into New York because it's a, it's a very protected area. It's also a very economical and in some ways, environmentally positive way to transport things. There's a big industry along both in Bridgeport and, New, and in New Haven and in Stanford where um, gravel and sand is transported on barges and then it's used for construction. Uh, but that it would, if, if we didn't use put barges doing that, there would be, you know, hundreds more trucks. On the, on the roads than there are now. So for whatever kind of society that people are thinking of building, there's a real transportation advantage to an area like a sound because it goes along the coast and is protected. That makes sense. No major storms blowing through because you've got land buffers to take that all of that energy up. That makes sense. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. So where can we um, find out more about the organization Soundwaters that you're a part of? You guys have a website? Oh, yeah, thanks. We do. It's, it's pretty easy. It's www.soundwaters.org and welcome people to come and see what we do, learn. We're just wrapping up our kind of public outreach season. Even despite COVID, we're able to do it. Uh, but there's lots of ways for the general public to come and engage starting uh, next spring. Sounds amazing. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you, Tyler. So there you have it. Sounds are rather rare since the shape is often difficult to achieve, but when they exist, they are extremely helpful. Coastal regions in general are important for protecting lands farther in. They provide habitats, but also absorb flooding and storm surges as much as possible, so keep an eye out for how you develop civilizations along the oceans. How and where they build and farm will affect them beyond just what sort of view they'll have. It'll impact their storm severity, local water quality, but also transportation and overwater trade. And it's not that unlikely that someone with a move earth spell could potentially create a sound over years, or if they were extremely powerful. Since Dr. Shemitz did say that all the boulders making up Long Island were moved south by a glacier, and who's to say that an evil wizard couldn't have the same effect? You know, just something to consider. As always, if you have any pressing questions or want me to take a look at what you're building, reach out. Shoot me an email at fromthevoidup at gmail.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fromthevoidup. I'll be posting updates on my own projects there, so go ahead and check them out. Maybe even follow. 
Feel free to ask me anything. Even if I can't make a whole episode out of it, I am here to help you research. Or hey, if it's a big enough question, I'll just add it to the list. Thanks again for listening to From the Void Up. Subscribe to this podcast with whatever streaming site you use and leave a review if you liked it. Or if you didn't, honestly. Special thanks to Jerry Reticliano for the theme music and Dylan Desmaris for the art. I've been your host, Tyler Hadar. And in the meanwhile, keep on building. I'll see you all next week.